Welcome to The Naked Podcaster. I'm Jen Taylor. A huge thank you and shout out to NGBN TV for sponsoring this podcast episode. Today we're hearing from Jory Rose. Raised with fear and anxiety, her parents' divorce and her dad's suicide at the age of 10, to building a six-figure private practice, authoring two books, launching a podcast, and leading women's retreats. Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. I have Jory Rose on, and this is really fun because every once in a while I do a podcast exchange, and we have done a podcast exchange. So when you showed up today, oh. like my old friend Jen, yay! <laughs> like I what like, a gift oh. to see you twice in one week. <laughs> I'm like, oh hi, I love you. <laughs> I know. I already, I'm already so excited because we get to have another amazing conversation together. Thanks so much for having me on. I am so ecstatic. This is so much fun. You have two websites and I yes. want to dig into the first one first or one of them first, mindfulnessandtherapycenter.com. And you're yes. in the Bay Area, California. So Correct. tell me about that website and business. So I am a marriage family therapist. I'm located in Danville, California, which is about 30 miles east of San Francisco. And in my private practice, I see about Half my client base is adult women. About a third of my clients are men. And I would say the other, actually, I would say a third are couples and the last third are teenagers and men. And it's been an amazing, beautiful progression of a journey to build this office. I literally meditated on what I wanted office space to look like for about three years. And I found it. Like, legitimately the exact vision that was in my head is where I get to practice my work. And part of what I wanted was a, a beautiful waiting room, which I've been collecting my favorite artwork of my favorite artist and things I knew I wanted to have in a waiting room space. And I wanted a room to do groups and not group therapy, but I lead weekly meditation classes, which unfortunately not in person anymore, but I'm now able to do that online. And, but I wanted a group space. I do um, weekly meditations. I do mindfulness workshops. I used to do mindfulness for kids, but that tricky, it was tricky with timing and working out scheduling. And I also do couples workshops. So I've got the space in my office to hold small groups. And then I've got this beautiful office space to do one-on-one -on -one work. And it's like being in a cozy living room. I mean, I have people come in, they're like, oh, I don't want to leave. And it's, it's a beautiful, inviting, safe, warm, comfortable space that literally I manifested. I'm a really good manifester, and this is just one of the many things that I waved my magic wand, and then years later it appeared. Well, it's not always on our timeline, right? Nope. Manifestation, I think, is intention plus action. Yeah. And the action on that was that I kept seeing that office listing, and I never called it because I thought it was going to be too big and too expensive. And it was just an assumption. Mm. And I kept seeing it pop up though. And I finally went and I'm really big into signs of the universe. Mm -hmm. And the signs on this were, were huge. And I'm Jewish. And when I showed up at the office space, the realtor showing me the space pointed to something on the door frame. He didn't know what it was. And it was a mezuzah, which is a peace dwelling offering. It's, um, there's a blessing that hangs in a little decorative um, it's, a, it's like rectangular that holds this uh, beautiful blessing that uh, blesses the dwelling. And he says, I don't know what this is. And I'm like, it's a sign. <laughs> and he, the previous tenants kept it up. And it, I walked in the door 
And there it was, it was my space. And it turns out I knew the owner of the building. He was used to be a neighbor. So again, it's manifestation, but what's happening inside that office space is now going virtual. And it's everything I ever dreamed of in a career, everything. Isn't that great? It really that makes is. me so happy. And it was a 17 year journey for me to get there. So it was yeah. really well earned. Oh yeah. Doesn't, I'm so glad. I'm so thankful that you said that because I think we don't give ourselves enough credit sometimes. And that's a beautiful way to say it. Yeah. 17 years to earn it. Well, Absolutely. and a lot of people see the outcome and judge themselves by comparison and say, well, I want to have that. And by all other views, it might look like it happened overnight. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, and I had a mentor once who said any success, you know, any overnight success took at least five years to get there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mine was 17 plus the life lived before that, that gave me the impetus, but you know, the actual <laughs> journey of opening up that office space was 17 years. I'm so grateful that you're so in love with it. You know, it builds my soul full of joy because I get to show up authentically every single day in my career. It is so fulfilling and I truly love what I do. I love helping guide people through transformation. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time part for me to get there because I had to learn how to trust in myself and my own journey and my own process of growth before I could even be a, an authentic player in someone else's journey. Yep. And part of what's behind that is to me building really vulnerable, authentic relationships with people. So in the beginning, becoming a therapist, I was really anxious because I saw what other therapists look like, which was that you know, that third wall, that blank slate, like that whole inability to be human. Yeah. And I knew that was never going to be me. And I thought that that was unethical as a therapist. So I had to recognize what rules I had to break while maintaining my ethical boundaries that allowed me to show up as a whole person. That I can imagine that that would be tough because you're right. There are these stigmas of what a therapist is supposed to be. Well, and I've had therapists before where you say, if they say, oh, by the way, I have to cancel next week's session. I'm going to be on vacation. You say, oh, where are you going? And they'll be like, on vacation. Yeah. It's like, come on, be a human being. Yeah. And I valued the therapist who could be honest about their own lives. And so for me, my, my clients end up knowing a lot about me. And it's not gratuitous self-talk. It's always in service of the work partly to build relationship and mm -hmm. to demonstrate that relationships are two-sided, that you need to demonstrate vulnerability to get vulnerability in return, that I'm role modeling effective communication, and that requires two participants. Yep. And mindfulness is the focus of my work. And so I will often share with clients in service of what they're going through, areas in which I still get stuck, and I'll be able to say, yeah, you're not alone. I totally get it. And when I'm stuck in this, here's how I use this tool so I can give them really hands-on um, clarity of what it looks like in practice. Because otherwise it's all theoretical. Mm -hmm. And even just me saying, yeah, I'm you know, struggling with my partner right now. They're like, oh my God, you are. It always looks like you guys are perfect. It's like, no, I'm human. Thank you. And yes, I'm human. Yeah. So it takes me off any pedestal and it's just me saying, I've just been practicing these tools longer. That's all. 
Well, and that's a big thing. I mean, any professor just has to be one chapter ahead, right? That's it. So it's it's really maintaining one chapter ahead. And the the I think the reason why traditional therapy has not worked for people is because we have this image of laying on a couch and you sitting there with your your little steno pad taking right. notes, saying uh huh, uh huh, you know, and and that's supposed to fix it. And humanness will fix things far faster. Well. And I feel like a lot of therapy is process driven mm-hmm. and that's helpful and that's necessary. And, and especially if we've got traumas to heal and family dynamics to understand. But let me tell you, understanding the process of how we got to where we are is not going to help us in the moment in the middle of an anxiety attack. It's not going to give yeah. us the tools to have effective communication in the midst of an argument. It's not going to help you calm down when you can't parent effectively. So I look at the way that I do my work, kind of like the Weight Watchers model versus Jenny Craig. So I used to be um, 70 pounds overweight. Okay. So for me, this is a very near and dear to my heart example. And I lost the majority of my weight with Weight Watchers. And I never understood, this is no doc to anyone listening who uses Jenny Craig. This is just in my own world and in my own understanding. It didn't make sense to me to be on a weight loss program that only said, buy our food, and as long as you're buying our food, you'll lose weight. I didn't wanna be the therapist that was the crutch for people doing well. Mm. I don't want someone coming back for five years with the same story, then I'm not doing my job. I wanna be the Weight Watchers model, which has come to me, pay me while I give you all these tools. And now go use the tools on your own. And if you need to come back for a refresh on the tools, I'm always here. But I want to give people the ability to function and to be self-sufficient and to grow outside of our therapy sessions. Because I've heard of therapists who have the same client for 15 years. And to me, that's not doing a good job, right? Or if someone only is as good as the commitment to their every week session, Right. I want to have someone be good regardless of if they're seeing me or not. Of course, after a period of time and working together. So it really is, I'm very tool driven and mindfulness has given me the framework of which the tools that I give, which are both time tested and science approved. So I feel like <laughs> I've got good backing. I love it. And you're right. That, what a great analogy. And I never, of course, like that wasn't, wouldn't have been an analogy that I would have used, but yeah. what a great but it makes sense, analogy. Right? Yes. I totally get it. Yeah. I don't want to have to be dependent. Like I will never keep the weight off or maintain my weight if I don't only eat your food. Right. And what it makes terrible... no sense to me. It, you know what? It feels selfish of the business owner to say. Yeah, it's keeping you dependent. Uh, yes. And uh, that's not me being in service because I'm, right. I'm heart centered, right? I'm a heart centered entrepreneur. So I really feel alive when I'm showing up being in service. The fact that I get paid is a complete bonus. Honestly, like it, that's how it feels to me. What a beautiful thing. Let's yeah. talk about jewelryrose.com. Yes. So this is my landing site for everything that I've got going on in my career. And it's a growth in process as we all are. Mm-hmm. And Can I tell you an awesome story that leads to the story of this website? Yes. You know I love the story. Okay. I've got so many good stories. So I'm going to pick and choose which one I tell, but this one's a really, really good one. So when I was little, my middle name was Rose. Okay. 
And when I was little, I always wanted my name to be Jory Rose. I thought if I'm ever famous one day, that's mm-hmm. what I want my name to be. Okay. I don't know what I was going to be famous for, but I loved the name Jory Rose. So I ended up getting married to a guy whose last name was Rosenblatt. So oh. when I got married, and when we, we started dating in high school, I'm sure we'll get back to my story we, we at will, some we point, will, yeah. but I, I married my high school sweetheart. And I got married and my name was Jory Rose Rosenblatt. I'm like, that is the stupidest name I've ever heard. <laughs> And I ended up two weeks after getting married, dropping the middle name and taking my maiden name initial from a middle name. So it was Jory T. Rosenblatt. I thought it sounded much better. Well, years and years later, I was at a conference. It was a wisdom conference and I was meeting all sorts of people in the mindfulness and meditation world. And I meet this guy who he was like a big connector. He was like in filler on the roof. He was the Yenta who was connecting people all over the place, right? This was what he did as a career. And he's putting my name into his phone. And he said to me, you know, I'm going to put it in just as Jory Rose, because when you get divorced one day, that's what's going to be your name. And I tell you, Jen, my immediate response was like, who the fuck do you think you are? Like, that was presumptuous. I'm married. Like, you don't know me. My second response was, how the hell did you just see right through me? Oh. So one of the people he connected me to was a web developer. And I needed to build this website. And this was probably almost 10 years ago. And he connects me to my web guy. I'm at my first meeting with him and I'd already had a URL picked out. That was some big, long mindfulness, something or another. And I had just met this guy for the first time. And my name, remind you, is Joy Rosenblatt at the time. So he looks at me. He goes, no, you know what? Your, your URL is all wrong. And he pulls out his phone. He looks something up. He goes, you know what? It should just be joyrose.com. That's just who you are. You're just Jory Rose. He goes, no matter what work you're doing in the world, whether you're a therapist, whether you're a mindfulness teacher, whether you're an author, whether you're a speaker, you're always going to be you. But that wasn't my legal name at the time. But I got the URL and joryrose.com was born. Many years after that, I did get divorced. And I had thought about, wow, maybe I really want to change my legal name now. And at the time, the divorce was too fresh. My kids were too young. It wasn't the right time. And two and a half summers ago, two and a half years ago, um, I was in Paris with my boyfriend, who's now my fiance. Mm -hmm. And I decided when we went to Europe, I wanted to buy a new piece of art for somewhere in my home. Our first day in Paris, I stumbled along this tiny little art artist shop. The artist was so perfectly Parisian. It was like a 12 foot by five foot wide store. And he was, had like wild hair and scarves and a beret. Like he was so perfectly Parisian. And I found a piece of art I, I knew I had to have. I went back a few days later to go purchase it. And we had this amazing conversation, really connected. And the credit card transaction wasn't going through. And he said, you know what? Go enjoy your day. I'll meet you at your hotel tonight. We'll finish the transaction then. That evening, he arrives at my hotel with a long stem red rose for me. 
And he says, you know what, Jory, I loved our connection so much. I, I just, I kept having this vision of a rose as we were talking. And in fact, I'm going to customize the art to add a rose on it because this is really meant to be for you. And I was turning 40 a couple months later and I thought, okay, universe, I hear you. It's time to legally change my name. And so I finally, after all these years, I'm now legally Jory Rose, which is the name I always wanted when I was a kid, which I had had three random strangers tell me who I am. And that's my website. So that's the story. Oh, how great. I know. I love it. And I get, I had to ask my, you know, my boyfriend, who's now my fiance years ago, okay, if we ever get married, just, you know, I'm not changing my name again. Like, this is me. (laughs) It's taken me 40 years to get here. I'm not changing it. You don't need people stopping you on the street telling you that your name. (laughs) This is who I am and who I've always meant to be. Um, so joryrose.com is the house of all the work that I'm producing. So I've got a podcast, which is called Journey Forward with Jory Rose. I've got online courses, and I'm actually in the midst of um, editing a really big, awesome online course right now. Some of the ones I have on there are just small, smaller audio courses. I do a lot of writing. I've gotten two books published. So um, one of them is a mindfulness book for kids called Squirmy Learns to be Mindful. And this was really an idea born out of a need that at the time that I first discovered mindfulness, I was teaching mindfulness to kids soon thereafter at a school. And I was at a private school, so I had a little bit more freedom with my language, Mm -hmm. but it was hard to find mindfulness books for kids that weren't Buddhist in nature that I would have trouble reading in in a school. Because you got to okay. be really careful with how you present in a public school setting. Um, so I wrote this book, Squirmy Learns to Be Mindful, for a secular approach in teaching kids tools of being present, of how to manage anxiety, of how to choose gratitude, and how to really be patient for what's next, what's next, what's next, and how to be with what is what's right now. So that's one of the books. And another one is called Mindfulness It's Elementary, which is designed as a guide for a teacher or a school counselor or even a parent to guide their child through cultivating a mindfulness practice. So that's broken down into 12 different topics in which there is like a, basically a script for how to talk about it, um, a meditation and how to guide through whatever that particular practice is, exercises, games, lessons, um, kind of some art activities to go with it. So those are the two books I've got published so far. There'll be more. Of course there will. Tell me about your coaching. So, and I find this so fascinating personally because you're a therapist and you're licensed and you get paid for that. And then you do coaching. And I, this is my opinion. I see therapy as taking a look backwards and healing and coaching is looking forward. Correct. I see the same thing. Okay. So describe where one leaves off and the other or how separate they are. I would say as a therapist in my private practice, I'm more of a coach than a therapist for that reason of being very tool driven and being very proactive. Well, I do meet my clients where they're at, right? So I don't have an agenda for the work. However, while meeting them where they're at, I'm going to be proactive in guiding them towards growth and change. Because I believe fundamentally, I believe growth and change is possible. And I want to guide people in creating 
the awareness of where they're stuck and provide the tools to help get them unstuck. That's what journey forward means, right? That's what that's all about for me. As a licensed therapist in the state of California, I am limited to performing therapy only in the state of California. Ah, okay. So by offering online coaching is a creative way of expanding my services by mm-hmm. having a different title with it. Now, I've never gone through a coaching program specifically because I'm, I've am i gone through a master's degree and years worth of education and internships. So I'm definitely qualified. Yeah. But I can't say the word therapist online and be able to do therapy outside the state of California. Got it. I Yeah. And I hadn't, as soon as you said it, I was like, aha. <laughs> and I would say again, as a therapist, I, I really bridge that gap between coach and therapist because again, our past influences our present. We have to create context and understanding our patterns, our dynamics, our stories, our identity of our relationships, of our attachment style. And okay, now what are we going to do going forward? Right? It's that difference between just understanding the process and having the tool for what to do in the moment. Many therapists right. stay in that processing place. And right. to me, that's not enough. I so, yeah, totally so I offer, agree. Yeah, so I offer coaching and it's, it, it's beautiful because it expands my reach. A lot. And, right. My work. But yeah. it also allows you the ability to use your um, degree and your training in the way that you find it the most helpful too. A hundred percent. And, you know... I have to say too, as a therapist who's gone through a master's degree program and in the state of California, you need 3000 hours mm-hmm. of internships, which likely and mostly are not paid. Right. You need 3000 hours of an internship and then you've got to pass two big exams. Now my journey, I told you took 17 years. That was because I started my hours when I was really young. I was a I graduated a year early for my grade because I started kindergarten at four and not five. Me too. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I ended up, so I graduated high school at 17. Yep. I went right into college. My boyfriend who became my husband was a year ahead of me in school because we started dating when I was 14. Okay. He was a year ahead of me in school at a separate college. I ended up graduating college in three years to catch up with him. So being a year young from my grade and then graduating college in three years, I was 20 when I graduated. Yeah. I went, I took one semester off before going into graduate school. So this is the point to say, by the time I graduated with my master's and I started my internship hours to be a therapist, I was super young. Yeah. Holy I had, cow. I had a lot of life experience when I was young in terms of trauma and death, but I had no adult life experience in real life. And I got 1,500 hours in to being towards that licensure and realized I didn't know anything. I had my education, but I didn't know how to apply it from that place of authenticity. That is such a high value of mine. And I ended up stopping my hours and I had my kids and I became a stay-at-home mom and I couldn't have been happier. I've got two teenage daughters now, but there was that point where I decided to go back for the hours and I had to start all over again. Because I was outside the window of the six hours to complete them. So in the end, I took, I ended up doing 4,500 hours worth of internships. And of course, because the path is never straight, the two licensing exams, I got caught in the middle of the state switching exams. 
So instead of taking a four hour and a two hour, I ended up with two four hour exams. So part of my point of that I'm sharing this is when I, I feel a little bit um, frustrated internally when I see people doing coaching who took like a six month online program and are now charging thousands of dollars to guide people through change and transformation. And I just get a little bit frustrated because the word coach can be used so freely. Mm -hmm. And I really value the fact that it took me 17 years to gain the knowledge, the life experience, the education, the internships, like all of it to bring to the work that I do. So it's, it's an interesting thing to be able to be online and call it coach because I want to hold the, the honor of all the work that poured into my therapy license. Right, which I hear, I am hearing you loud and clear. And that's yeah. what I think sets you apart in a lot of ways. Having said that, that is so above and beyond. <laughs> I, I know. Mean, <laughs> and it's what I had to do. I mean, it's right. just, it, it just was what I, and, and again, I'm not here to diss any coaches because I know there's coaches doing great work and there's also, do, there's therapists who've gone through that training who are doing shitty work. Yeah. So I'm not here to judge or knock anybody. It's just interesting how the language holds power is all I'm saying. It does. It, it does holds hold a lot power. of power. It does. Well, you already alluded to some stuff. So let's go back in time. Yes. Because I think there's a story before the high school sweetheart. Yes, there's always a story before the high school sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so jump in and tell us about that. Did you grow up in California? I did. Born and raised uh, in California, born in Southern California, and moved up to the Bay Area going into third grade. Mm. Yeah. So I say, you know, how I, how I like to tell my story is I was raised with fear and anxiety on a silver platter. Oh, how nice. Yeah, it was really helpful. Yeah. And the difference was the fear and anxiety that I was raised with was not based on what ifs. And, you know, so much of fear and anxiety is a result of the mind going to the future into what ifs. Mm -hmm. And my reality was the what ifs were actually realities in my family and in my family history. So I felt like I had really good reason to be fearful and anxious of the world and that the world wasn't a safe place because bad things happen to good people. So what that looked like was my mom, when she was 16, her parents were killed in a car accident that my mom was the only survivor of. And the three of them were hit head on by a drunk driver and her parents got instantly killed. And she woke up lying in the street next to her dead mother. And she instantly became caretaker to her two younger brothers and her Russian immigrant grandparents moved in. And of course, how could that not shape her whole life and therefore her life as a mother and therefore mine? And my parents, I'm the youngest of three. So I've got a sister who's 10 years older and a brother who's seven years older. And my parents ended up divorcing when I was three. And it's really interesting because my siblings and I grew up in completely different households, right? Their age difference of mine meant they grew up mom, dad, brother, sister in a two-parent household. And for me, when I look at my childhood, it was really just my mom, my brother, and I because my sister was already out of the house. Um, and then to compound, when I was 10, my dad commits suicide. So... I, I had this fear and anxiety that people leave, 
And that caused me a great amount of dependency on my mom growing up. I mean, I literally, Jen, I could not sleep over my friend's house who lived next door. I would have so much separation anxiety. I had always trouble sleeping at night and I was super, super dependent on my mom. And I also had heard from her growing up that I was the reason she got up in the morning. Being that I was three years old when going through her divorce and back in those days, dads didn't really fight for custody. No, and it wasn't really normal for that. So for a couple of years, we still lived in LA where my dad lived and I would see him on the weekends. In fact, I have a memory that he would, and this, I have very, very few memories of my dad, but this is one of them. He would take me to McDonald's for breakfast on Saturdays. Now in my mind, it could have been every Saturday. It might've been only once for all I know. I think it happened a couple of times, but like in my amalgam of memories, it was more often. And that was just me and him and he would take me and I'd get pancakes and sausage and dip the sausage in the syrup and it was so good. Um, but then we moved up to the Bay Area. And from that point on, I saw him twice a year. You know, winter break and summer vacation for like two weeks. So when he died, I wasn't all that close to him because I didn't have a, a real relationship to have formed. It was more of a conceptual. And even with that, it was such an interesting experience because there was one time when I was at his house when I, I think I must have been around eight or nine. And being the curious kid that I was, I opened up his nightstand drawer and I saw a gun in there. And I never told anybody. And I didn't know what to do with it, but it freaked me out. And years later when he died, all my mom said to me was, daddy did something to himself to make himself die. And I never had to ask the question because I saw the gun. And no one ever actually said the words to me. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I, um, my sister, for a variety of reasons, showed me his death certificate where it actually said gunshot wound to the head. And then I started asking more questions and turned out a lot of the story, no one ever told me. I was, I was little. Yeah. And I was self-protected against it. So even though my mom's parents' accident clearly was before my time, it had such huge influence in my childhood growing up. Partially, I knew I couldn't really act out and rebel because I knew enough to know that my mom had gone through enough to not cause more anger or angst for her. So I was a really compliant, really good, good, good kid. And she and I were very close. And, but that would also, you know, huge anxiety. If she was five minutes late picking me up from somewhere, I, I, I was convinced she was dead on the side of the road because that was a reality in her life. That wasn't a what if. And, you know, when I was 13, I met my, what then became my husband, but he was my best friend and he became a source of a lot of safety and security and comfort for me. And over the course of high school, because we met going into my freshman year, again, I'm young for my age, so I was 13 going into high school, I would also started to, at that point, gain more and more weight. And here was this nice Jewish boy that all nice Jewish girls want, right? Here was this nice Jewish boy who loved and accepted me, mm. no matter if I weighed 180 pounds. And I'm not even 5'2", so for my frame, that was pretty big. And it was easy, and it was safe, and it was really comfortable. 
And even from early on, there were things missing as far as relationship, but that didn't matter because my value of safety and security were higher than the things that were missing, like greater intimacy or vulnerability or deeper connection or ability to communicate really well. When I was young, the safety and security, that was my, that's what I needed because the world up until then felt really unsafe and really insecure. And you were struggling personally with anxiety or was that your mom or both of you? I definitely was. Mm -hmm. Um, Being left mostly. I had, and and you know, my, you know, the quote abandonment story is still really big for me, Mm -hmm. conscious or unconscious. Right. And it's interesting because you would think that my dad committing suicide would activate abandonment because it would be easy to attach the story of he didn't love me enough to stay alive. And I actually don't, and I actually don't believe that for some people that would be really easy to attach to. I don't believe that because I actually believe he died because he loved us. And this is what he needed to do to help continue to take care of us financially. If he died, then we would have what we needed. Ah, so it was a life insurance. Yeah. Wow. And yet, and yet abandonment for me is still really hard. And I think it's this idea that there, there's not a lot of security in the world. Like what, you know, my mom's parents, you know, they, they went to go drive my mom's friends to the train station. They came back dead. So it was always a tangible fear. And like, even now in my relationship, with my fiance and it's a great relationship and he's a psychologist. And so he and I are able to have the awareness of what's going on inside of us internally more so than maybe most couples would, Mm -hmm. but we're both highly sensitive and we both feel things deeply and we both have, you know, everybody does right. Wounds and pains and insecurities points. And when he's in his pained and wounded place, he needs space. And it's still to this day so hard for me when he needs space for me not to interpret that as abandonment. It looks and feels the same. It does. Because when I'm feeling insecure or in my anxiety, I need connection because I need that reminder of comfort and security, right? So I'm not sure regardless of how much work we do, some of the things are always going to be there, maybe at lesser degrees, Mm -hmm. right? I've been able to turn the volume down on that. But some days are easier than others. I think it's interesting. Your mom was in that car accident when she was 16 before you, and you carry that with you like it was part of your experience. It's a pervasive family story. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. It is, it isn't because it, to this day, she's turning 74 on Sunday to this day it's impossible to separate her out from that story. So it yeah. so much of her parenting and she and I were very close growing up and I never, this was interesting. Most teenagers go through, I would say 95% of teenagers go through the natural developmental stage of individuation separation. Mm-hmm. It is necessary and it's important and it's, it's there for a reason. I never went through that. And I was raised with the message that being alone was bad because my mom didn't want to be alone. So like I couldn't be in my bedroom with my door closed because it made my mom feel shut out. 
So I wasn't given the space to have that individuation separation. And I truly believe it's because developmentally, she stopped developmentally growing at age 16. Mm -hmm. So she never understood the value of individuation separation from your parents and why that's important. Because in her mind, if you have parents, why wouldn't you always want to be with them? Because that's what she wanted. So it really impacted my development. And, you know, even before I got engaged, I was probably about 22. I remember asking myself the question, am I here because I want to be or because I'm afraid not to be? Mm -hmm. I mean, I Interesting never that you asked. Oh, it's a huge question. Yeah. And the answer was, I was afraid not to be. And through my journey and, you know, what really began to shift in my early to mid thirties and cultivating a mindfulness and meditation practice and going on retreats and like really figuring out who I was for the very first time, because up until my early to mid thirties, I was really dependent on my mom. And then I transferred all of that dependence to my boyfriend who became my husband. And it was like, my name was one word with him. I didn't know who I was outside of that identity. I had to find myself. And at one point in my mid thirties, I had a major life changing experience. And I asked myself the question again, am I here because I want to be, or because I'm afraid not to be. And at that point, I wasn't afraid not to be there anymore. And I was like, ah, fuck. (laughs) Now what? Right. With awareness, with true awareness comes responsibility. What are you going to do with that? You loved him and you were good friends and it was a good relationship. Am I correct? Okay. And And honestly, Jen, I really had the life I always wanted. We had a beautiful home. I always wanted two daughters. I got to be a stay-at-home mom. I didn't have to work, which I loved. And my girls and I are really close. Mm -hmm. Um, He had a great, has a great job and career. We would go on three vacations a year. Like I didn't want for anything. Thing. So it was truly an existential crisis of I'm happy, but I'm not fulfilled. And this is good, but I think I'm missing some really important things. And I'm just not in alignment with myself. At what point did you start getting, I want to know the um, correlation between you deciding to go back and get your hours and finish and that awakening and yeah. Yeah. And then what do you, and then you said earlier, um, you know, maybe lacked intimacy or communication and some things that are really important, even though it had all of those great checking the boxes, right? Checked all these boxes. It was, all, it was very logically perfect. <laughs> yeah. Logic and emotion don't play well in the sandbox. No, they don't. <laughs> no. So how did all of that line up or did it at all? No, it a hundred percent did. Okay. So I decided, I, I woke up one day in, in my early thirties and I was like, I don't remember, I don't know how I got here. Even though I, I crafted the life I had, it wasn't right. And I, I, I told you, I'm very big into signs and like, mm-hmm. you know, awarenesses. My wedding ring was the same way. I designed my wedding ring. It was exactly how I designed it. Once I got it, I never really liked it. Hmm. And at one point, at the same time of all of this, my ring started to give me a rash. My body started rejecting my ring and it never had done that before. So I decided to go into therapy and it was literally that first day in that therapist's office 
I was sitting in the room and he used to always welcome me in and then leave the room for a few moments to get me settled, which I hated at first because I felt like I'm paying you. Why are you not in here? <laughs> but it was also, I hated it because I don't know how to sit with myself. I don't know how to be with myself. I had always stayed distracted to some extent. And it was in that therapy session that first day that I realized I really like this space, like this energetic space. And I think I want to be on the other side of the couch. Mm -hmm. And it was from then that I decided to go back for my hours. And a series of amazing serendipitous events unfolded in which I was able to start um, I reconnected with my old supervisor who I worked with eight years earlier, who I hadn't spoken to in seven and a half years. And this was in January of 2011. And she worked with schools. And so I was assuming I'd have to wait till September to start an internship because I'd have to wait till the school year started because it was already mid-year. I hadn't spoken to her in almost eight years. I call her and she says, I have a school that just came on mid-year. I had an internship all lined up and just last week she, she dropped out. Do you want the position? So I started within a week and from there, I one day was sitting in her office and I saw a book called mindfulness. I said, Oh, what's that? I had never heard of mindfulness. I'd never meditated a day in my life. And I got curious and she just kind of pointed me in a direction to which I took my first mindfulness course, which got me more curious and taught me that I had never up until then ever slowed down. I was always doing what was next, what was next, what was next, what was next in order to create that safety and security, that perception of safety and security. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that I was conscious in it, right? Because we go through life on autopilot. We just do, you know, we get in the car and our car knows where to drive and we don't necessarily pay attention to how we got there. And that's what I felt like. And so that early mindfulness class led me to taking more classes. I ended up getting certified teaching mindfulness to kids. I ended up going on retreats on, with John Kabat-Zinn, who's like the grandfather of mindfulness in the Western world, um, did a seven-day retreat, which was life-changing, and ended up doing a five-day silent Buddhist meditation retreat, which for five days meditating, 16 hours a day, no eye contact, no reading, no writing, all silence. That was intense. So I really delved in and it became this combination of a personal and professional path. Mm -hmm. And that's when I really got to know myself where I got out of my head and stopped believing the logic in my head and started trusting my body, my intuition. Which is a huge shift. Huge. I even was on my seven day retreat talking to some friends that I had made and I had this major awareness in realizing I hadn't felt love in my relationship. I thought it. My experience of love was cognitive. It wasn't experiential. How sad. It was. You did it with was. your parents, though. Did you with your siblings, or was it skewed? Um, my siblings, my brother was more like a dad to me than a sibling with his age difference and growing up with them. My sister at that time, her age difference was so much bigger than me. We didn't have much of a relationship. With my mom, I definitely did. But in my relationship with my husband, it, it, it was more in my head than in my body. And that resulted in a terrible sex life. 
Well, and yeah. you could imagine, right? So in recognizing that I had lived up in my head, I needed to learn how to get into my body and into the present. And that's what that journey looked like. And I had this, my single most life-defining moment took about two and a half years of, I had a lot of serendipity. It's about two and a half years of serendipitous events to get me there. But I ended up on a retreat with a guy named Dan Millman in July of 2013. And he wrote the book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, mm -hmm. which for many people is entree into spiritual practice and spiritual awareness. And so this weekend was the Peaceful Warrior weekend. So the first part was developing a peaceful, compassionate heart. And the second part of the weekend, really just on that Sunday, was developing your warrior spirit. So that Sunday morning, he's teaching us martial arts to a Lionel Richie song. And I'm like, <laughs> how the hell did I get here? I'm in upstate New York in the middle of summer doing martial arts with Dan Millman to Lionel Richie. Like, how did I get here? This was amazing. Uh-huh. And then he guided us in an exercise highlighting self-doubt. And we had to get into a group of three. And let's say you were my long lost friend. Okay. And I'm about to cross the room to come embrace you. Okay. And as I walk towards you, someone throws their arm right in the middle, blocking me. That person represents self-doubt. That stops us from getting to where we want to go. And the first time I let it stop me. The second time I let it stop me. The third time I push past it. So we had to each rotate through these roles of experiencing different aspects of self-doubt. He then assembled two cement blocks with a purple meditation cushion in between and a board across the top, a plastic board that was interlocked and said, you have to break a board. And my first thought verbatim, I can't fucking break a board. Mm -hmm. There it was, self-doubt. It was right there. And there were 65 people on this retreat. And he told us we get one chance to break it. And I get up there and I didn't break it. I was one of six people. And I thought, see, I was right. I told myself I couldn't do it and I couldn't. I was totally full of shame and embarrassment. And then everyone went, he said, okay, raise your hand if you didn't go. I raised my hand, still full of shame. I got up there again and something in me shifted. I realized the first time my entire energy and focus was on the board. And this time I shifted all my energy down to the cushion because he told us the goal is to hit the cushion. The board mm. is simply in your way. The cushion represents your dreams and your goals and the board represents your obstacles. And I took my deep breath and I focused my energy and tension all on that cushion and I broke through that board. And I let out this big screaming whopping yell. And in that moment, my life was never the same. Because I realized I no longer had an excuse of I can't do it. And I thought, oh, shit, I got to get divorced. <laughs> but I took action, right? Right. What was that conversation like with your husband and how did he feel? <sighs> that took a while to unfold. Okay. That was not an easy process because this was, you know, 23 years into a relationship. That was all I had ever known. I was 35 years old. We had two beautiful children. And that was a hard path to navigate because this wasn't something he wanted by any means. 
And while he supported my growth and my journey, he was also very fearful of it, understandably so. Right. He probably sensed a lot of that current. And we've been divorced now five and a half years. I would say the majority of our divorce has been as about as a, about as good as you can get it to be. We go through waves um, where he has more anger towards me than others. We have times that we get along great. Last summer, we traveled with our daughters to Europe for two weeks because my youngest daughter got bat mitzvah in Israel. And we had never been to Israel together and that really felt an appropriate thing to do, just the four of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were with the tour group as well. It wasn't just us, but so I really strove to have the mindful divorce. You know, at the time, Gwyneth Paltrow had just got divorced and she was that conscious uncoupling. And while it's cheesy, I really felt like it was possible and it was a choice to do so. And, um, you know, it's ultimately we're exactly both where we need to be because he gets to fully be him and I get to fully be me. Is he aware of that now? <clears throat> I think so. And partly how I know that is he's always pretty much from early on. And I've been with John for over four years now. He's really supported that relationship. And he says, I'm so, he's probably said this to me about six times at least. He has said to me, I'm so happy you found him because he's exactly what you always said you ever wanted. And that's just not me. So to wow. me, that's beautiful validation that takes, you know, for all the unawareness that I had assumed he had, there's definitely moments yeah. that take a lot of awareness and vulnerability and courage to be able to communicate that. And so for that, I have great appreciation and, you know, it's still a divorce. It's not easy. No, it's not. And again, How are the girls? You know, they've had their struggles. It, you know, it, it's still hard for them to go to their dads at times because this is their home. I've, they're with me 80% of the time. Mm -hmm. And the very things that were challenging for me in my marriage, they get, they see in, in the parenting, right? So yeah, they get it. Um, yeah. but my girls are incredible and amazing. They are not your typical teenagers, which I couldn't value more. And by that, I mean, they are not caught up in the social media. They're not caught up in what's trendy. They're not caught up in fitting in. They've got really strong values and morals. They know exactly who they are and they're not willing to compromise who they are just to fit in. And the three of us, it's fun. Like people often yeah. think we're sisters. Personally, I was young when I had them. So I look young compared to some other moms with kids my age. Yep. But part of it's our dynamic and our relationship. And I value, like the parenting piece is so strong for me. Yeah. And I do a lot of parenting work with my clients because I, I have such a high value in parenting because it's, it's possible to create these tools that even if you don't come from it, right? We can learn yeah. it and we can earn healthy attachment. And my girls have told me for years, mom, you need to write a book because other moms need to know what to do because like, you're really good at what you've done. So we often don't get that validation until maybe they have kids and I'm getting that from them at, you know, 14 and 16 years old. And I have for years and I don't take that lightly. Not at all. I don't take it lightly. So my big question for you is what was sex like? 
At which point? Well, you've had sex with the same, you're in a 23 year relationship that started when you were 13. So I'm not going to jump in and make tons of assumptions, except that I would guess you haven't had a lot of experience outside this one person. And you said that your sex life was terrible. It was, you know, I, I now know, I'll, I'll put it this way. <laughs> Esther, Esther Perel okay. has a great quote that I actually have heard her say, but I'm not sure it's hers original, but I'm going to give her the credit. Okay. She says, sex is emotion in motion. And I love that because for me, it, it demonstrates role models, however you want to say it. Sex is a reflection of everything else that's showing up. And when you've got vulnerability, when you have ability to be authentic, when you have communication, when you feel seen, when you feel heard, when you feel adored and honored, your body responds a whole lot differently. <laughs> yes. And I used to think something was physically wrong with me that my body didn't respond in a way that I knew it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there's nothing wrong with me. It turns out you can't necessarily create something that wasn't there. Yeah. There's a Death Cab for Cutie song. I think it's Death Cab for Cutie that there's a line in the song that says, um, you can't miss nothing when there was nothing to miss. Some, it's something like that. I screwed up the line, but you can't miss something when there was nothing there at all. Something like that. Mm -hmm. And that related a lot to my marriage because it wasn't there to begin with. And even when I um, was a teenager, we never had sex at a time that we should have been raging hormones. Right. So I knew then something was off and, you know, becoming an adult and being able to embrace that part of me for the first time, it was fun. Yeah. And empowering. And now in my relationship, it's, it's amazing. And it's, it's such a reflection on all the layers of our ability to feel safe, to feel, you know, I mean, what more vulnerable acts is there than spreading your legs open? Yeah, no kidding. It's the most vulnerable thing you can do, right? And to feel free in your vulnerability is huge. Where did the weight loss come in and how did that impact things for you? Um, that was huge too, but it didn't impact, it, can't, it happened early on. Yeah, okay. Um, so really when I was in college, but I, you know, I think where maybe I would have hid behind my weight as far as finding insecurity in what would have been dating, I never let my weight loss be the impetus to say, oh, well, let me see who, who I can find now. Right, right. You know, but I mean, I went from 181 to 109. 109 was too skinny. That was unattainable for a long period of time. But the weight loss happened over the course the majority of it happened over the course of a year and a half, and then it kind of trickled on. And, and I've, I've gained weight back on now, and I'm now a healthy weight. And, and yet it's easy to have that, that story and that mindset of, quote, the fat girl, still very easy to access. Right. Right. So despite the fact that I weigh a certain amount or wear a certain size, that's an easy part of me to tap into, which can still cause insecurity. And I, I just have compassion for that piece of myself. I try not to overdwell on it. Um, but the, the weight loss happened really early on, like before I got married. Got it. 
Yeah. Tell us, connect us, because now, I mean, it's so, what's fascinating to me about your story is that you chose your profession and got through almost, well, all of your schooling, everything but your internship, before you dealt with anything. Most people have a struggle and then choose, but you chose first and then just ha took the time to make that path yes. back. You know, my profession early on was really going to be a very logistical one for me. A, I knew I always wanted to be in service and help people. Like that was just in my soul. Mm -hmm. So there's that. But I also, as I mentioned, I had such a high value I placed on parenting. I knew I wanted to have a profession that I could be home with my kids. So I wanted to have a job in which I could create and structure my own hours that I could pick them up from school every single day. And my oldest just got her license a few months ago. And up until that point, I can honestly say, Jen, I've never been in a carpool. Yeah. I have been the one to pick up and drop off my kids every single day. And I value that so much. And now that they drive, well, she drives, but she drives my other daughter with her at times, right? I miss that terribly. And that was a big driver of my career choice was knowing I can only ever have a profession in which I'm in charge of my own hours because even now with my private practice, I mean, obviously things are shifted during, you know, seeing clients virtually, but it was such a priority of me that I'm going to work around my schedule that I pick up my kids every single day from school and after school, I'm full-time mom. Sure. I might have a phone call. I might have to do work at my computer, but I'm home and I'm here and I'm cooking for you every day and I'm driving you where you need to go. And that presence is going to be constant. And that's just been a high value of mine. And I've been able to do that. That's really just unusually incredible that it came back around. And then the coaching though. So you, you finished your internship and you went right into parenting and working with kids. And then you started the coaching also on top of that to do a wider scope. Yeah. Are parents or mom, you said women are 50% of the practice. Is that yeah. because you're attracting that and that is... My ideal client Yeah. Is, right, I really am my ideal client. I mm. want to work with the women who wake up one day and said, how did I get here? I don't know who I am and how do, where do I go next, right? Or I'm in this relationship and I don't think I'm happy and I'm stuck. How do I get to that choice of what do I do? Or... You know, my kids are about to graduate and I've only been identified in my role of wife and mom. Who am I right now? How do I begin to uncover this piece of me that I haven't accessed for 18 plus years? So I get really, my soul lights up to work with people who come to me with, who am I? How do I get to where I want to be? How do I begin to figure this path out? So even in the couples work that I do, Women are the majority of the drivers of couples therapy. Ah, okay. You know, um, there's one of my great teachers. I've never sat with him personally, but I love his books and his podcasts and his tools is a guy named Terry Real. And one of his books, that's actually like 15 years old now. His book is called, How Can I Get Through to You? And the basic premise of this book is that women are unhappy in their relationships because they want more from their men. They want more awareness, attention, emotional, you know, connection, vulnerability, communication, adoration, touch, you name it. Mm -hmm. Men are unhappy in their relationships because their women are unhappy with them. So women have 
a higher level of emotional awareness to know what's not working. And men are a little bit more simple in their needs. And we could have a whole other conversation about the socialization of marriage, which I'm not going to get into, but there's a lot that feeds into that. So women are the ones who are seeking to create change. And part of my naming my practice, the Mindfulness and Therapy Center, is partially to attract the right person to work with me because I want someone who is out of a place of trauma to the majority of the point that they are ready to show up and create change, right? I, I, I don't want to pull teeth with anybody. Yeah. And I want someone to say, I'm ready. I just don't know how. And women get to that point where they say something's not working and I don't know how, but I need to learn how to fix this. Jory, I had so much fun with you. Which I is know, what? I love you, Jen. <laughs> I love you, Jory. Okay, so which is what? Which is what? I'm sorry. I was going to say, which is also the, a huge part of the parenting piece, mm. because I get a lot of parents calling me saying, my kid, you know, can I send my kid to you? And my answer is generally, yeah, but I'd rather work with you because if I can get to the mother, then the mother's the one who has the ability to create a whole shift in the household. If I can help her change how she's responding versus reacting, then likely a lot of what's going on with the kid is going to calm down on its own. If I can give the woman the tools for naming her needs and role modeling what she wants from her partner, that can start to shift that relationship. So I see the woman as the core to all the dynamics in relationship, in the family, in the parenting, in themselves. And so it always amazes me when men come to me on their own. I mean, I, I definitely have you know, a good handful of men in my practice. And I love it because it takes, a, you know, a good amount of consciousness and awareness for a man to go to a, a female therapist. Mm -hmm. I and I think it. it's really healthy because they get a role, I get a role model with them, really healthy dynamics with women, which I love that too. Wow. That's actually fantastic and interesting. And I wouldn't have thought about that. Well, my therapist for five years going through all of my stuff, he was a, he was a man. He still is a man. And <laughs> okay. It was often a big part of the work because he got to role model really healthy relationship with men. And, and even going through like sexual awareness and awakening for the first time and bringing that energy into the room in a way that wasn't acted on, right? Because we would mm -hmm. talk about that. How to, how, how to have healthy chemistry that's not always sexual. So right. for me at that time, that was a hugely beneficial relationship, something that I would not have gotten from a female therapist. So some of my male clients, I think, get the same for me. I love it. Thank you so much for being here with us. You are so welcome. You can have me back anytime. And in the meantime, we should just keep chit-chatting because I agree. I know. Yeah, well, I adore you. I know. We just need to keep talking. We just need to set up weekly Zoom meetings just because. Well, right? and, you know, once the world opens its doors again, then we can just, like, meet up for, you know, dinner and hugs. And I know. When we can get past this COVID BS. Uh, I know yes. you're four hours away from me. That's not so far. I know. Thank you so much. You are so very welcome.
Thank you for joining today. It's been a pleasure. You can find me at momof18.com and on social media platforms as momof18. A huge thank you to NGBN TV for sponsoring this podcast episode. A huge thank you to NGBN TV for sponsoring this podcast episode.